More questions than answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Hi everyone, Julie here. You know, as awful as the last two and now going on three years have been, really the silver lining to it all has been getting the chance to meet and chat with incredibly thoughtful, uh, brave in many cases, people that I never would have had the chance to meet if it, weren't, if it weren't for these trying circumstances. And last week I had the chance to sit down with British cartoonist and illustrator Bob Moran. Um, Bob worked for The Guardian and then The Daily Telegraph until he left in October 2021. He is, a, as I said, a, a cartoonist and illustrator. He also has an animated short film called Father's Days. And he became very interested in the COVID narrative and he started tweeting about COVID-19, especially against a palliative care physician named Rachel Clark in late September, I believe it was 2021, for advocating the wearing of face masks. He ended up being um, let go from the Daily Telegraph as a result of uh, speaking out. So Bob is in many respects just another victim in what I've called the pandemic of coercion and compliance. But as you will see, Bob is no victim. He's incredibly thoughtful and articulate and you can see the courage and the kindness and, and the thoughtfulness about other people uh, really as soon as he speaks. Um, his insights, I think, come not just from his close attention to the world events, but with his, from his own personal experiences with the medical establishment that have given him, I think quite rightly, uh, reason not to blindly trust our medical system. Bob has since been hired by the Democracy Fund and he produces three cartoons per week. So I would encourage you to check those out during our chat, we talk about all kinds of things, including, you know, what is it that he does? What is it that motivates the work that he does? How do his ideas get generated? And why journalism, whether it's in the written word or drawn, as Bob does it, is important or essential even for freedom in, in society. So if you enjoy these chats, don't forget to subscribe to the Democracy Fund on YouTube uh, or check out our website, thedemocracyfund.ca. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Democracy Fund. And you can follow me, Dr. Julie Panessi, on Twitter and Instagram also. I really hope you enjoy this chat. So excited to talk to you today. I, you know, I see your cartoons come through and they are so just, they're, they're so expressive of what I'm thinking and I think what many other people are thinking, but you just have this ability to capture it visually and in so few words. So I'm so interested to talk with you about that today. I'd love to hear your story you know, about how you came to practice this craft, um, how ideas get generated, and then of course your thoughts about what's going on in the world today, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Well, it's great to be speaking with you too, Julie. I've, I've seen a um, number of your interviews and videos that you've done, and I feel like, um, we're very aligned in terms of the um, ethical and moral uh, catastrophe that that's unfolded over the past couple of years and the way in which people seem so reluctant to focus on that aspect of things. Um, and that's that's been a big part of my motivation in, in creating my work, my cartoons over the past couple of years is to try to get people to focus on those things. Um, 
Well, the psychology of what's been going on, that was not apparent to me two years ago, or maybe even a year ago. Um, I really thought it was just a mat. I, I thought, I mean, kind of been familiar with what we call a medical ethics regulatory capture. It's been going on with the pharmaceutical industry for a long time. So that part wasn't really a big shock to me, but what, what's taken a while to come to terms with and to understand is just the deep seated psychology that keeps people in a state of fear. And I know that I, I imagine that's something you're really interested in because you see that theme in your work, you know, that keeps people in a state of fear that um, keeps people focused on certain sources of information, uh, regardless of whether or not that information seems consistent or effective. Yeah or, or uh, you know, playing out in ways that are good for our lives. Um, yeah, and, and sort of the way I think you, you've seen a lot the way that um, the brain seems to want to, to cling to an idea. Um, if, if, if people are believing in things that are clearly mm -hmm. untrue or harmful to them or other people, uh, but but they've been convinced through fear propaganda that that they should believe in these things their brains seem to want so desperately to cling on to them and when anything challenges those ideas there appear to be certain defense mechanisms that the brain will throw up to either shut down the conversation or sometimes even um I, i've had experiences where people will act as if you haven't said anything you know they'll they'll kind of go blank for a few seconds and change the subject and um yet certainly the power of um behavioral science and propaganda has been revealed to to everybody and um i mean obviously i have a fairly good understanding of how powerful propaganda can be because working as a cartoonist that's it's kind of what you do in a way is <laughs> I was going to ask you is 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 being a cartoonist a kind is that a kind of propaganda well I certainly began to see myself um near the beginning of all this as as um a kind of counter propaganda artist I suppose because I became aware of uh, I think it's been the same in Canada and the UK, the amount of money that the government was spending on their propaganda campaign, mm. the posters and the ads on TV and radio. And so I thought, well, what I'm, I have a platform here and I have the tools and the skills to be able to produce my own propaganda, if you like, but, you know, uh, images and ideas um, to try and cut through what they're saying and say, hey, here's a, here's a different way of looking at things. Um, I, I wouldn't say that before that I would have considered myself um, someone who produced propaganda necessarily. Um, we've never been in a situation like this, have we? So um, I don't know. I'm not sure. It makes I, me wonder. I um, well, I mean, possibly, possibly uh, various points in history. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I. I guess not in my lifetime, I don't think. Certainly not in my career. Anyway, let me put it that way, since um, mm. since I started working for newspapers. Um, you know, nothing, I've never really had to deal with anything that transcended politics in this way. Um, mm. That 
that kind of covered all aspects of what it means to be alive, what it means to be a human being, um, what gives life meaning, what gives us purpose. What truth is, whether we care about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what are our moral principles? What is science? What's the relationship between those two things? Um, Mm-hmm. You know, it definitely seems like there's been this idea that um, science somehow trumps morality, you know, somehow takes precedent over moral and ethical ideas, which I find so worrying and dangerous and, and clearly shouldn't be the case. Um, why do you think that's so worrisome? I, um, I mean, my background in philosophy, I worked with a number of philosophers of science, and they, I think, would certainly hold the view that science is the, the panacea for all that ails humanity, and that it's a perfect system, or that we can, we're aiming at a perfect system, and that there's really no one other um, viable or, or, or useful source of information, that science is the be-all and the end-all, so to speak. Why, why do you think that's a dangerous idea? Um, I guess that uh, I, I don't think science necessarily always concerns itself or, or shouldn't really concern itself with some of the deep moral questions, ethical questions that we have. It's um, you know, exploring the human spirit and the purpose of human life and, and how we create a society that can work and progress. And it's, it's um, you know, it's about the observable quantifiable elements around us in the universe and how they interact with each other. And um, I feel like the point of science is to explain the physical realm around us and give us um, guidance on what we could do to make our lives better, to make ourselves healthier, to protect ourselves. But where the line is drawn is that, that science isn't really equipped to tell us what we should do, right? That's where mm -hmm. philosophy and morals and ethics come in. And so, because potentially science could come up with any number of theories and findings and studies We've discovered this. We've we've discovered that this thing would be beneficial for human beings, or, or just that it's possible, um, or, or that this is possible. Right? Exactly. Um, and that's fine, but <laughs> it's not really for the scientists to say. And and here's also why it's absolutely right for us to implement these things or to use these ideas. We have a different discipline. We have different group of people who've thought about those questions for a long time who can then come in and say based on what the scientists have told us here's whether it's right to actually take those ideas and run with them you know exactly like the idea of lockdowns um to me that there is no argument really that holds any water why lockdowns are, are morally justifiable at mm -hmm. all or ever were but because scientists said, well, they'll work, um, we, and again, <laughs> they didn't really have much reason for saying that, but it was as though because these scientists were telling us that that's what we should do and it was our only option, mm -hmm. no, everyone else was excluded from the conversation. 
And you think, yeah, but that's, it's not a scientific question. It's much bigger than that. Um, and lots of people have taken this view of, well, I'm not a scientist, so I can't, I can't even participate in the conversation. And mm -hmm. if you're trying to bring in things like, like moral philosophy, um, no, because this is only about science. So that's we're, we're psychology. starting to see the effects, right? That the masking and yeah. will have in our children and um, even economy and history. And I mean, pretty much everything apart from science and public health was excluded from the conversation. Um, you know, you are, I mean, just in talking with you for a few minutes now, it's very clear that you, you're very, you're a thinker. You, you could have been a philosopher, a writer, um, oh. many things, and you, cho you chose to express your ideas visually. How, how did that come about for you? Why did you make that choice? Um, it's, it's something I've always done since I was, you know, very, very small. As soon as I could hold a pen, I wanted to draw and very specifically, I wanted to draw um, pictures that made people laugh, pictures that said something, you know, that, that I used it as a form of interaction with other people and, and um, as a way of making sense of the world for me. And mm -hmm. it, it's still very much how I try and make sense of the world. Um, you know, when I'm drawing my cartoons, it isn't just for an audience, it's also... Um, for me to try and figure out what makes sense, you know, to try and whittle things down to those uh, fundamental truths. And so I, I, growing up, I was always drawing and I was always doing what you would call, I guess, cartoon style work. And there was a lot of narrative in my work and caricature. Um, I got into a lot of trouble at school for drawing my teachers. <laughs> and, and graffiti on the desks and that kind of thing and, um, <laughs> and again you know there was pressure at school for me to go and do something else to go and study English or history or, or philosophy I think things like that and <laughs> something um, that make you really employable <laughs> yeah exactly well it's a you know it's a very weird thing to want to do Julie like when you're 12 <laughs> years old and you say I want to be a political cartoonist for a newspaper did you steal that when you were 12? Yeah, it, when I was 12. Um, and I remember one of my art teachers at school saying, I think that's exactly what you should do. But <laughs> nobody has any idea how you get there. Um, because there's no route. To, you know, you can't go and study at university. Most um, art colleges aren't that keen on it because this is it's this weird crossover between journalism and art or journalism and illustration. And so... Uh, you know, if if you're a journalist, journalism course, you don't know how to teach cartooning. Um, the artistic side of if you're an art course, you can't really teach the journalistic elements. So um, it was difficult. I ended up doing my degree in illustration and then kind of learning the other aspects on my own time. Um, yeah, but it, it's uh, it's a strange it requires a, a quite a strange combination of skills and abilities and interests that just not many people have. We're, you know, we're slightly odd people, cartoonists. Um, you you kind of you have to be a, a skilled draftsperson, obviously, but you've also 
you can't be too arty, if that makes sense. You can't be too precious about your work because you've got to be willing to collaborate with editors and you have to be willing to screw it up and throw it away uh, halfway through the afternoon if something changes. Um, you've got to be it able has to, to happen quickly, I imagine. Yeah, you have to be really fast. You know, you've got to be able to stick to very tight deadlines and um, and work for a specific audience you know if you work for a newspaper you have to understand who that readership is and what they think about different things you can't let you can't always let your own views bleed into that too much because um there could be stories where you think i don't agree with this i think this is mad but then you realize that maybe quite a lot of the readership will feel differently so you have to be willing to um not be totally honest I guess always with your work that that's one of the big things that changed for me though I mean maybe we can talk about that you know at the beginning of this I suddenly thought I can't I can't be anything other than absolutely honest with the work I'm putting out now because I disagree so vigorously with what's happening um my cartoons have to be entirely me, entirely my view. And I was very lucky because I was allowed to do that for the first 18 months. And a lot of my colleagues could completely see where I was coming from and shared a lot of my concerns about where this could potentially all end up and how it just um, didn't appear to make any sense. And, and the, the things that were being put on the line, you know, the principles of democracy and the rule of law and our relationship with government and relationship with our families, how we interact with each other as human beings, all of those things. Um, but as time went on, that I sort of, I think I drifted apart slightly from my editors and, and the brand I was working for and they started to get become um, there was a lot of conflict creeping in, you know, between what I felt needed to be said and what they, it was like they had decided to change tack and go off in a different direction. It wasn't, wasn't so much that you, you were changing your political views or ideology. It was more that you're a book. So this is the, the Daily Telegraph and. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, masks, the issue of, of masks, you know, I've, I've always been against face masks I've never worn one and I sort of I remember explaining why and and to begin with I was allowed to do a lot of work that was against the idea of masks and trying to point out um, why they didn't make sense why they were damaging and uh, I remember about six months after the masks were brought in some of my colleagues were saying things like you know I don't mind wearing a mask anymore I've got used to it yeah. You know, it's just so much time has gone by. It's what everybody does now. I don't even think about the fact that I'm wearing one. And I remember saying, yeah, that's what they want. That's, that's not exactly a good thing. What, that's how they want you to feel. You know, you have to try and fight those feelings because all of the reasons why they, they don't make any sense and they're damaging and they're, they're prolonging all of this and, and creating the atmosphere of fear and paranoia, they're all still there. It hasn't changed. And I feel that that with so much of it people get worn down you know people get worn down by the passing of time and 
things they understood to be wrong initially because nothing changes because they don't go away they i don't think it's they forget but it's maybe it's too exhausting and and you know we know it is this is exhausting it's, it's so tiring and and the masking there there is a bit of a social crutch involved right so for people who um lack certain social skills or aren't comfortable in, in social i mean i've heard people say this that they feel like they want to wear a mask forever because they, they don't have to look at facial expressions we we yeah. um earlier this week so monday we just had our the mask mandates lifted in ontario i was very curious to go out in public and see how many people yeah. continuing to wear them and it was probably two-thirds to three-quarters were still wearing the masks when they didn't have to and I don't know if that's because most of them are still captured in the fear. I, I know that many of them are because they've expressed that. And many have said that they will just wear a mask forever because they've learned the benefits of it. Because their belief yeah. is that, well, I've worn a mask for two years and I haven't gotten COVID, therefore wearing the yeah. mask is the key, right? That kind of idea. Uh, or yeah. or if it's also that people feel like, well, I, don't, I, I won't take the mask off until you take the mask off. And I don't really want to suffer that kind of subtle, insidious social ostracizing right yeah but the yeah. masking is so interesting because it's not just this um like virological physical scientific issue as you were talking about but it's really a metaphor for um the masking and silencing of, of certain ideas do, do you find I, I i don't have one in front of me yeah. but i feel like i've seen some of your work that has played on that idea uh yeah i've done a few different things to do with um the idea that associating the masking with essentially um, <laughs> surrendering the soul, if you like, the kind of um, uh, uh, abdication of, of agency of um, I have a voice, but I mean, not just literally I have a voice, but that that sense that I'm I have something to contribute to society, to the conversation, you know, to, to us progressing and trying to build something good and worthwhile. Um, it, it, it appears to, it, you know, it's as if by putting on the mask, people are um, demeaning themselves to such, to devaluing themselves to such an extent, saying, I'm not really part of this, you know, there's nothing special about me. Um, some people have literally said that when I've explained my position, they'll say, I'm not special though. I can't take a stand. I can't not wear a mask because I'm not special. They actually use those words same thing with the the vaccines you know if you explain why you're not having the vaccine and, and they will take it on board and again they'll say but i have to take it because there's nothing special about me you know and, and you say yeah. having bodily autonomy is not some special privilege that some people have <laughs> you know um do they mean that they're not uniquely courageous they want to say, well, Bob, you're, you seem to be courageous. You can do this, but I don't have that kind of. Maybe it's courageous. I think more of them take the line more of, well, you, you appear to seek out confrontation and I don't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm not really, you know, I people never described me like that before, you know, because I think, um, it all used to be in my work, right? So all of my aggression and kind of um, everything I wanted to say and argue against would go into my work and I was fine. I was perfectly happy not to take it any further. 
Um, and I suppose that has changed a bit because I have refused to wear a mask and um, I have had some arguments because you do get into arguments with people mm. um, if you do that. But yeah, I, th I think it's more people don't, so many people, um, they don't want to be seen as a difficult person, as a, someone okay. who's, and maybe they think it's kind of petulant, pathetic, and like, why don't you put it on? Because they don't, maybe they don't understand all of the different layers of meaning like we've just been talking about. Um, and I think, I mean, especially with children wearing masks around, I know there's there's a sort of a separate issue of making children wear masks themselves, which is really dark and, and bad, you know, just terribly damaging. But even adults wearing masks around children, um, particularly very young children, you can see the disconnect there and, and the trauma it's causing to a young child. There was a video, um, I don't know if it's still around, it may have been taken down now, that I remember seeing near the beginning of it. I think it was an American psychologist doing this very simple experiment with a mother and her, her young baby, maybe a, about a year old, um, just interacting close up, playing with toys and smiling and laughing. And then he got the mother to leave the room for a few seconds and come back in with her face covered, the bottom half of her face covered. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a face mask, but it was a piece of cloth or something similar. And immediately the baby's behavior changed. It was um, very obviously distressed and was trying to pull the mask down. And then eventually it starts crying um, and this, this um, psychologist then explains, you know, children need to interact with our faces, all aspects of our faces, and it's so disturbing for their brains if they can't make sense of it, if, if part of that message is being blocked uh, and it inhibits their development, you know. Um, it's one thing when we, when we're sort of fully formed, whatever that means, to do it for a portion of our life. But another thing, as you say, for a child who's just learning language and emotional coping mechanisms and body language and, and actual neural development to introduce, I mean, I have a daughter who uh, she's almost two, so she's never lived outside of this COVID situation. And until Monday, I was never able to take her anywhere where some people weren't wearing masks. And I don't think we'll know the effect of that for a long time. You know? No, my youngest daughter's um, 14 months and it's the same. Yeah, you know, she's never been outside of this world, outside of this world of mask people and people's social distancing and strange signs everywhere. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's very troubling. And, you know, that I think part of the mask thing for me is that because I'm so concerned with faces and always have been, obviously, I think so much about faces and I'm always drawing them, working out how to how to um, capture someone's likeness and what to exaggerate and how to um, picture an expression. If you're trying to get somebody looking worried or concerned or happy or excited. Um, so maybe I have a heightened awareness of how much we need to see each other's faces, mm -hmm. how crucial that is, perhaps. 
Can we talk a little bit about how, so the, the mechanism of creating your, your artwork, is it, uh, do you draw it? Is it computer generated? Is it a mixture? How does that? Um, I, I'm very old fashioned, um, ironically, because everyone's surprised by how young I am because <laughs> um, I'm called Bob and I'm a cartoonist so they all imagine a like a 75 year old man I have to admit um, that so I fell into that stereotrap trap <laughs> I, yeah it's I and I, I get it you know especially because of my name um, and when yeah. I work for the Telegraph which is you know, obviously a conservative newspaper most of the readership is are in their 80s and 90s so <laughs> um, people assume that I was a certain way and um but interestingly, the way I work is very old fashioned. So I, I draw and ink and use watercolor. It's all done by hand. Um, and then I'll just scan it into my computer and clean it up a bit. That's all before I um, file it to people. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's just the way my I, I figured out that um, I, I liked working that way. That's how I enjoyed working. And I think possibly there's a um, more spiritual thing going on where I, I feel like it's really important to be able to create something that's actually physical, actually use your hands to make something you can hold up and that's mm. real. Um, and to have that tangible connection with the materials rather than just uh, using a screen and buttons. Um, I find that really gratifying and quite, quite important and kind of meditative sometimes. Um, I'm looking at one of your, I think it's pretty recent. It's called Somewhere Hot. Is that this week? Oh, yeah. That's, that was this week. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so curious about how, like, what is the what is the first idea that you come up with? We'll put this up on the screen and so people can look at it. So it's basically a few uh, sort of four people. They look like they're going on vacation. They're wearing vacation clothing and they have suitcases. And then they're kind of descending down into the pits of hell. It looks like yeah. right with a fire at the bottom. And then it yeah. says in the caption from one of them, "Oh sure, we complied with everything because we just want to be able to go someplace hot." And that's so. I mean, you know, that's like two short lines but it's capturing like these two ideas that are so um like so much a part of the propaganda of this COVID narrative the one is that you know you think that you can buy your freedom by yeah. giving up a little bit of it right so I'll comply my way out of this situation yeah. of this capture but then also this double entendre with um you know like I'm in it by doing that I'm not just going to the hot tropical spot but I'm, I'm descending into the pits of I've given up my soul or something right am I reading too much into that yeah it's um I mean it's interesting because some people so, some of them um can be interpreted in slightly different ways and I'm fine with that um my my intention with that cartoon was more to say that you know this is all headed in one direction and it it takes us to a very bad place we're all um metaphorically if not literally going to end up in some kind of hell some kind of nightmare we only go into a very dark place um i didn't necessarily mean that the people who have complied with everything are going to hell or that they're you know they can never be forgiven i i but you know some people take it like that and um 
I suppose that's okay. I mean, that that idea, when you're asking about how the ideas are generated, the short answer is that they all come slightly differently. Some of them arrive fully formed. Um, you just get an image of... I just, I have, I, I will just get an image pop into my head. And usually that will be when I'm in quite a heightened emotional state. You know, if I'm particularly angry about something or upset, that's when that will happen. When I'm feeling a bit calmer, sometimes they can um, take a while longer to figure out. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll have an initial idea about what I want to say, and then I have to gradually work out how to say it. Um, with that, with that one, uh, someplace hot. I think I, I wanted to do an image of people descending into a fiery pit, but then I wasn't quite sure. I'd had that for a while, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it because potentially I could have done something very dark, not particularly humorous. And then I decided, no, I think this will be better if I if I make it darkly funny you know rather than just because because some of my work isn't um obviously there isn't really any humor there's no gag you know it's just mm. kind of um trying to trying to make people see um a, a sort of an explicit reality a truth that I feel they're missing and and um like the I don't know if you've seen the um the old man wearing the baby in a papoose that says um stab vest on it um there's no there's no real gag there as such you know it's, it's a very dark hard-hitting image um and it deliberately I wanted it to be hard-hitting um and that one again I had that idea a long time before I ever released it because I was in two minds about whether it was too much you know whether it was going too far um what do you mean by going too far? I mean, are you always trying to, it, it seems like a lot of your work is satirical and satire, it needs to be subtle, I guess, but not so subtle that people miss the point. How, how do you kind of strike that balance? Or or sometimes the, the papoose uh, cartoon that you mentioned, sometimes it's it's that subtlety is not the goal, I guess. It's it's more like showing people this thing that's been hiding in plain sight and presenting it to us and saying, look, this is this is what's going on here. This is what you're, you know, this is what you're leading us to. This is what you're saying when you're doing this. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's not there's not a lot of room for subtlety. <laughs> those ones. Um part part of what cartoonists have always done. Um, the part of the purpose of editorial cartoons is to push the boundaries of um, taste and, and what's offensive, what's acceptable, how mean can you be to certain public figures? Um, where, where do those lines lie? And of course, they're always changing, moving the lines. And so we, we are kind of... Um, we're like the court jesters, you know, in medieval times, who were given special permission to mock the king and the and the other members of the royal family that say things that nobody else could say, um, and and perform a kind of dance right on the edge of what's allowed, um, and it's hard. I mean, sometimes you get it wrong. Um, sometimes 
things don't land in the way you want them to or people take the wrong message hmm. um sometimes you you look back and you think i i could have said that in a cleverer way or a more subtle way um hmm. you have to i think once you've been doing it for a number of years you learn to trust your instinct to to a large extent um and understand that less is more like it like lots of things less is more you know there's uh, often if something doesn't work it will be because you've tried to cram too much into it um and and you have to try and whittle it down even to an even simpler image an even simpler idea this um so that raises two <clears throat> two thoughts for me that idea of distilling kind of complexity right down to the essential idea you don't only comment about covid i mean your uh, some of your recent uh, cartoons are about other political ideologies that uh, seem to be coming at us very quickly i'm looking at the one i think it's called uh oh this is right and you oh, have yeah. six, six images right so you have this is a woman and it's a so underneath, so the, the, the line, this is a woman, but above that is someone dressed in a dress, but it's very clearly a man with a lot of body, you know, so it's sort of playing on this gender. Um, yeah, it's, a, fest gender it's a festival of cognitive dissonance. That <laughs> yes, and then you've got, this is a Democrat, which uh, is supposed to be Trudeau, I'm guessing, on because he's wearing blackface on the horse. I mean, that's pushing a lot of, you know, that's pushing a lot of boundaries. And this is the truth. And of course, it's a TV with with news um, on the front of it. But you, it, it's interesting to me that you can, you know, I mean, those are all kind of dichotomies or a kind of cognitive dissonance or a kind of hypocrisy. There's that kind of polarity and all those ideas, isn't there? And do you think that that's really what's kind of like if if anything was the hallmark of the the early 21st century that that would be it yeah um it, definitely i mean that's that cartoon is a sort of attempt to sum up where we are now as as western democracies western society with this i feel um very much deliberate attempt to constantly confuse us and discombobulate us and, and remove uh, any any kind of stable structures that we'd like to believe we had things we could cling on to that are certain that are unmovable un undeniable you know there's no debate over them it, it's it's all like it's all been thrown up into the air there, there's nothing you can cling to there's no, nothing is true there's nothing is defined anymore and with that comes this um, just relentless hypocrisy all of the time where you know we've had two years of people trashing um long-held principles and values um and the things like that are yeah um all the things that our society is supposed to be built on and then all of a sudden, the same people are standing up and saying, oh, we absolutely must defend these things. These democracy matters. People's agency matters, you know, and you you realize that, I mean, with the Ukraine situation is, is a great example because, I mean, and whatever's really going on there and whatever the nuance of that. And um, it's a terrible situation regardless. But I just feel that having gone through these two years where our 
understanding of our moral values and, and our principles have been either abandoned or inverted in some cases or, or just destroyed totally trampled on and, and the people who were trying to say hey what well, this is dangerous you shouldn't do this were cancelled and told to shut up and called dangerous and lunatics so we, we come through that and then we have a situation like that and, and you just think but we don't have the tools anymore to even approach this how do we even have a discussion and how can we listen to those same leaders talk about that situation because they there's no integrity in it you know it, because they've made it abundantly clear that they don't value the things that they're suddenly saying are important mm. and that's that's the trouble and that's what that cartoon is about it's it's how how do we even hold any kind of intelligent discourse and approach any sort of real situation with this level of confusion and double think everywhere mm -hmm. um you know, you, it's very, so clear that you spend so much time thinking about what motivates us, what motivates others, how we interact with other people. Um, mm. what, do you, what do you think people now really want? I mean, I, I thought for a long time people wanted to be free. I thought that in a democracy that was like a fundamental first principle, a given. I thought yeah. people wanted as much freedom as possible so they could create the lives they want according to their understanding of happiness. I thought people wanted to be free and happy, but I'm not yeah. seeing much evidence of a desire for either of those things now. What is your No, I agree. I and I I that's what I thought as well. You know, I I thought most people just want to be left alone, which is, I guess is a form of freedom but as far as their governments are concerned it's it's like um you know as much as you can back out of my life and let me make my decisions and carve my own path but it appears that that who knows where it's come from and whether it's a recent thing or whether it's always been there but there's a huge proportion of society that seems to desperately want to be to be parented um and nannied by their government and told what to do where to go when when they're allowed to do these things um they seem to find an enormous comfort in that and i'm not sure where it's come from and part of what i'm doing is i guess with my work is trying to convince them that it's not you shouldn't want that you know you, this is what surprises me about at the beginning of all this you know so much of what concerned me what wasn't the things that the political leaders said it's what they didn't say it's the spe speeches they didn't make and it's the fact that leaders like macron and johnson and trudeau didn't stand up and say to their people you shouldn't want me to do this you know even if you think it's necessary you you should be really concerned that i even have the power to do this to you because it's dangerous it sets such a dangerous precedent um it, it changes the relationship between me as a leader and, and you as the people who've elected me to serve you, not to rule over you like an emperor or a king, but to serve you. And none of them said that, none of them addressed that, none of them um, explained the risks that they were taking by, by implementing these mandates and measures.
and things. And because like you say, most people seem to welcome it with open arms. It was like, oh, thank goodness. Finally, you're just taking everything out of our hands. We don't have to make any decisions anymore. You know, we don't have to, we, we can be told when to do things, when to see our own families. And um, Do you think that's because we've just gotten too complicated? We were just bombarded with information and technology and, and the internet and phones have just made so created so many more possibilities during the time during a day are we just yeah. overwhelmed and overstimulated and that kind of created this uh, this little opening in the door for government to step in and say i will simplify your life and you mentioned earlier that you know we there's this like dichotomy between i i'm an emperor to tell you what to do or I'm supposed to serve you. Well, I think people think they're the same thing now, right? That I am served when someone tells me what to do. Yes, that's the service they're providing is mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> dictatorship, weirdly. Which um, is comforting in a way because you now you don't have to think very hard about how to live your life because- <laughs> you know, Right, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, and maybe some people are thinking, oh, I find that I find electing leaders so stressful. It, it wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to choose anymore. They just, you know, they just stormed the, the palace and, and took over the kingdom. And back in the good old day, well, we didn't have to worry about silly things like elections and democracy. <laughs> yeah, these inconveniences of modern life. I mean, you might be right that, that all of the, the nature of um, the digital world and social media and email and the way most people's jobs are now is, creates so much anxiety for most people that um, when when a situation arises where you know suddenly you don't have to worry about a huge portion of your decision making and the, and the your I guess responsibility for your own life um, there's a sense of relief and we had that you know you saw it there were newspaper articles of people saying oh uh, you know whisper it but I quite enjoyed lockdown you know, there was this thing for a bit of like, oh, actually, locked, isn't lockdown nice? You know, this is actually quite a nice way to live. And you think, you know, there's nothing stopping you living like this if you want to. That's the, the whole point is somebody's forcing you to do it. And it's like they couldn't see that. Um, and it was very much a middle class thing, you know, for people who just um, could bake banana bread and watch Netflix and, and get still get paid money, work from home easily. And watch more and more shows about how to bake better banana bread. And you could become an expert in this thing because you have the yeah. luxury to do it now. You know, I joke, but I think it is, um, it's very interesting how constraint and limitations can be comforting under the right circumstances. And then there are, you know, I mean, there's psychological defense mechanisms like Stockholm syndrome in, in a way that, that we, we, you know, there are ways that the human mind kind of molds itself in order to see something negative as, as a positive and become even dependent on that thing. You know, I, um, I know we're getting short on time, but it, none of this sounds very hopeful, does it? It sounds like we've gotten ourselves into a place where we're primed to accept just about anything. But do you, do you think yeah. there's reason to be hopeful these days? Do you think that we can think our way out of this, emote our way out of this, elect our way out of this? I mean, uh, I don't know about the last option, really. <laughs> I'm quite skeptical about electing our way out of this. I think that amongst all the darkness and disappointment and, and hardship that's happened, 
there is an opportunity that's presented itself um, to, and it's not going to be easy, and I'm not completely sure how we how we get there, but we've identified so much of what's wrong, first of all. We, we've identified so many flaws in the system, so much that's lacking that we thought was there. So we have an opportunity to build something better. But, but I think you've said this before, Julie, that, you know, stopping it all lifting the mandates um and and getting people to drop the theater of covid and all of that is only the first step you know the problems is still there the the, the reason we got to as far as we did still remains and and then the real task begins of how do we address that how do we rebuild it i mean i was going to ask you about i've i've had this metaphor for a while and i haven't managed to get it into a cartoon because it's i'm still trying to figure out why but it's how to do it well and simply but i felt as though um we we thought that our core values as a society and our kind of understanding of morals was this very secure like marble pillar and we kind of we had politics around it and we debated ideas and we decided how we would progress and do different things. But in the center were these things, which by and large, everyone was supposed to agree on. And in times of hardship and an emergency, we, we could all cling to it and feel like we were going to be okay because we had these shared principles that were untouchable that, you know, that we, and it's, it's as if it turns out that it was more like a Jenga tower those things and what happened when politicians started to implement these measures and these lockdowns is they they yanked out some of the blocks at the very bottom of that tower and what we've seen is the whole thing coming down in slow motion and when the dust is cleared and, and we've stopped it all we don't want to rebuild the jenga tower you know we have to build something different, something that is as stable as what we thought was there, because it clearly wasn't. That's the, one of the most shocking things is how easily and quickly all of this has been swept aside. And so it is, I do believe it's possible to make something stronger that will last, that we can rely on. But first you have to get people to understand um, what's been lost and how dangerous it's been, how fragile it was. Um, that's a big, that's a big challenge, isn't it? Because we have to have a very clear understanding of what we had, what was lost, why it was valuable, why we might want it back and how to rebuild it. And these things we're talking about are so fundamental to what it is to be a person and what it is to live in society with other people. And we, um, this tension we see now between people who are, you know, seem to be collectivists where they're willing to give up their, just be martyrs for the group and people yeah. who feel the value lies in, in individual and freedom. That's like a first principle disagreement, right? It, it's not clear exactly. to me how we will, those Jenga towers look very different or the pillars that those groups will want to build will be very different, right? That's true, yeah. And um, 
and there's a lack of trust you know that so much of this is thrown up how there's you know there's a healthy distrust but that we should have for our politicians and our media but what's happened is we stop trusting each other as citizens as as the electorate um which i feel they've you know it's what they've they've designed it that way that they want people to have this distrust and this breakdown in the gestures of trust right like the smile and the handshake and these basic things mm. and if we can't trust each other we can't even begin the dialogue of where do we go from here you know how do we rebuild it but so beautiful gestures of trust like all these things that are so symbolic of our humanity and we've had such a like our human history is so defined by things like ritual and you know that you shake someone's hand that you look them in the eye and that a whole business deal can yeah. be based on something like that and now we're really prevented from doing all those things we're sent the message that we're, we're bad people for wanting to interact with other humans in that way right and um, Bob, I yeah. know we're running, I see we're running short on time, but I hope we'll have a, let's have another conversation again. I mean, I'm sure in, the, in a month or two, things will have, have evolved and we'll have learned more about what's, what's really, you know, gotten us to this point. And yeah, I don't doubt it. Yeah. As we uh, enter yeah. the fall, right. Things will look different. Again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be good to speak again and, um, see how the land lies in a few months. That would be great. Absolutely. Well, thank thank you so much for what you do. You said at the beginning that it feels like we, we you know we kind of have shared um, ethical principles or intuitions or ideas, and it's so interesting to me that a lot of the things I think about and then speak about or write about, you are depicting visually, and it's just so many different ways that we can keep the channels of communication open and give people an opportunity to to question and think and reflect and so thank you so much for it's so fun to, to see your face and hear your voice today when we, all, we only ever see your images and i hope people really enjoyed that so thank you so much oh thank you julie um thanks for talking to me and for everything you've contributed to all of this um i've been following you since your your um, initial video and the controversy and all of that and um uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so comforted by, like you say, I, you know, I'm not a philosopher, I haven't studied these things, but when you come across somebody like yourself who really has, and you share the same ideas and you, you're concerned by the same things, that's a tremendous comfort to me. Agreed, agreed. Thanks, Bob. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with me today. If you enjoyed watching this video, please consider making a tax deductible donation to the democracyfund.ca slash donate.